Hello, hello, hello. All right, amen. All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to go right into it. I was uh, thinking this week, first of all, don't be afraid to take like, we need to get rid of all those bottles. So they're going to be out there until they're all gone. So if you take like four or five, that's cool. Just give one each to your kid. And each one of my kids is going to fill it up because they got so much change. They don't need They don't know what they're doing with it. Um, but I guess uh, Mark and May Fulmer, right now I think she's like running the New York Marathon or there's some marathon coming up and she's going to be something like that. So they're out of town. Um, but they said that if you fill one of those bottles up, it can be, uh, she said, on average it's 20 to 25 bucks is what it ends up being. So you can imagine that times 200. Right now, because of the economy, um, people are basically, the last thing they're doing is writing a check to a ministry like that. So the orphans and the uh, widows in Africa aren't going anywhere, and so they certainly need our help. And instead of having a, a Christmas thing where, you, you know, which there's tons of Christmas things you can do, this is something that was a little more personal, kind of connected with us, and you can speak with Mark and May when they're back and hear a lot about their ministry. It's pretty awesome. So take a lot of bottles. No one's going to say anything. They're going to want you to, so please take as many as you can. All right, as I was um, preparing for this sermon, uh, I reminded myself, or was reminded that this coming week is Thanksgiving, which I guess typically we've only had, uh, well, we've had a couple Thanksgivings, I guess. No, really one? I don't know. A couple in this church. And so, I guess you're supposed to maybe preach some kind of Thanksgiving sermon. I was trying to think of all the sermons that pastors have given in, the, in my history of church life and whether or not it was like, okay, here's the 10 things you should be thankful to Jesus for. I don't know. But instead, we're talking about God's wrath today. So if you think that uh, it's going to be like, thanks, how are you doing? I, my hope is that by the time you get done listening to me puke out all this stuff on you, you will hear and be grateful and thankful for how wrathful God is, which seems odd. Um, but it is um, hugely important, so we'll get to that. But a good question to begin is if someone asked you, or if you were to ask someone this question, what would they say? And the question is, what is God like? My son will ask me that question, and they'll ask all kinds of questions that you know you should have the answer to probably, but you don't until someone asks it, but no one ever asks it because they feel stupid for asking it. But kids don't, so they'll ask you the flat-out questions, what is God like? And you kind of go, uh, I, what do you say? And even if your mind, for my mind, like when I first started thinking about that question, how quickly it goes to the one sentence or one word or whatever answer, how presumptuous are we to believe that we can describe the infinite God in 20 words? But... I think people try, and if they did, if you kind of think, okay, what would come out? I believe that people are so concerned with men's approval in this world that they would probably tailor their answer in such a way as not to offend anybody, if they give an answer at all. But in order to not offend someone, they will typically not talk about truth, for the most part. And so they would give some answer that would be something that sounds good, and it would probably be affected by so many different things. Like if someone asked me the question, it would be affected by how much sleep I got last night, whether I felt very spiritual at the moment, whether I had some bad enchiladas last night. I mean, whatever it is, I might answer very quickly, very rudely, 
very spiritually, I don't know, there's a lot of different responses you could get to the phrase or the question, what is God like? It could be any number of things. But depending on who you ask that question, you potentially could get thousands of different answers. I would think that everyone in here even, if you ask them that question, would probably give something a little bit different. I could probably pick the ten things that you might say about God. But they would give thousands of different answers, which is really no different than you would if you had been in Egypt at the time where this is taking place, and you would ask that question to the average Egyptian walking down the road. The first question they would say in response to you is, what God are you talking about? Because they had over 2,000 gods. They had gods for everything, for fertility, for harvest, for the bugs, for anything. And basically what would happen, how they would create these gods, is if they needed the god to do something like, I need to get pregnant, so let's make a fertility god. So they would make some fertility god, have a big like belly on it, and bow down to it and worship it. And then when they got pregnant, they would say that god is awesome. If they didn't get pregnant, they'd think, we didn't do enough, and so they'd make sacrifices or create festivals, whatever. And they would do this for all the gods, thousands of them, which I don't know... As you look the Bible or read the Bible through, you go, whoa, those people were totally different. I don't know how different that is, because once you get to the New Testament, where thousands of years removed from that, you have Paul talking about the Corinthian church, which is this very colorful, you know, urban church. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8 that although there is only one God, you look around, there are gods everywhere. There are many gods and lords, as we all know. Not speaking that there really are but the fact that there's all kinds that people worship, specifically at that time. And I don't know if that's much different than today. we got all kinds of gods, just as we have all kinds of answers. And I believe that if you ask people for their descriptions of what's God like, rarely will that actually line up with what the Bible teaches about God. You'll ask them, and it doesn't sound anything close, if you're even familiar with that. Now, I think for the most part this happens for two reasons. One is that people are generally very ignorant about what the Bible says. They make a lot of assumptions about what the Bible says, but they really haven't a clue what the Bible says because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out they haven't read it. And so their understandings of God are based off of what people have told them, what parents have taught them, what some article has said, what Oprah said on TV, whatever it happens to be. And typically, they're pretty warped and distorted versions of God based off of our experiences, either good or bad. Ignorance. The other is maybe more common, which is rebellion. And that is, if you look in Romans 1, if you read Paul's description of what, beginning about verse 18, of what mankind or sin has done to mankind in terms of its worship of gods. He basically says that everyone knows that there's a God. And in fact, creation is so clear in its declaration that there's a God, it even tells you some of the things God is like. He says the invisible attributes are clearly seen by what is made. Therefore, men are without excuse. And it says that even though men know God, they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth that there is a God and they create all kinds of different gods. And how I see this happening is that people even use the Bible. They come to it like they come to a spiritual buffet called the Royal Fork of Scripture. Okay? I don't know about you, but I used to go, I don't even know if they have Royal Forks anymore, but 
When I was a kid, one of the most wonderful things I got to experience with my grandparents who owned a toy store, so they rocked. They didn't really know them that well, but they had a toy store, so they were cool. And they would take us to the Royal Fork. And I think that's where, like, they got a senior citizen discount or something, because that's the only place we would ever go. And we would go in, and it was like, it was like Eden to me. It was amazing, because, you know, I grew up, my mom made, you know, something, a meat or something to eat. She had vegetables and, you know, every little thing. Well, this was like... All kinds of things that could be there. And so we'd go and I'm like, wow. And so you'd have anything you can imagine. At the very end, you always had the meat. And it was always under a red lamp. Do you remember that? Maybe it's still around here. I don't know. And then it always like it looked cool to the red lamp, but you didn't know really why they had it until you got it back to your table and you realized that it looked way better under the red lamp because it had been sitting there probably for like five days. So the buffet, right? And so we approach the Bible in the same way as buffet. And me, I could care less about the buffet. What I wanted to do was get past the buffet to the dessert rack, right? It was this big rotisserie thing that had little teeny plates filled with all kinds of things. You got a piece of cake, pudding, the jello thing with the like whipped cream on top. And so I would say, well, can I, can I have, this is dinner, right? It's like, take as many as you want. So I guarantee you, I was skipping over the chicken and the beans and the stuffing and all that stuff to the stuff that I really want to eat, right? I'd have a tray full. You could, just, you could put as many plates as you want, and you could go back as many times as you It was amazing. So I would have trays full of just stuff that tasted so good, but not good for you. I wouldn't tell my mom what I ate. No way. But the reality is, I think that it's very accurate picture of what we do with spirituality, what the world does with spirituality. They just take the pieces that are going to be good, fill the tray with what they can like versus what maybe is actually not necessarily good for them, but in a sense good for them and true. They take their pieces. So when they approach the Bible, they'll come to, if they read it, mind you, will read the Bible, come to a part and say, "Mm, I've heard about this chapter. I'm going to skip over that one. Or they get to a part and say, oh, read this, and God is like that. Ooh, I don't like... You know what it must mean? It must mean this, because that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't taste good. So I'm going to change the taste of it a little bit. And they reinterpret Scripture, they throw out a piece of Scripture, or they just ignore it altogether. That's the spiritual buffet that I think is probably more clear of why people come up with thousands of reasons what God is like versus actually getting the God of the Bible. And so we get to this passage in Exodus, beginning in Exodus, chapter 7, and extends this kind of section throughout all the plagues to you know, three or four chapters in. And it's a section of Scripture that's reminded, or we're reminded of it all the time. The Israelites are always being told, remember what happened in Egypt, remember what happened in Egypt. And as I've been studying like what the scholars say about it, and I've, I haven't read any sermons about it, but, I, but I've heard sermons about it, and... What I see is that most pastors, and maybe I'm just naive and dumb, which wouldn't surprise me, but a lot of pastors go into discussing how each individual plague addresses the individual deities that were in Egypt and all these types of things. They go, we'll see frogs here. It was the great frog god and all this. There's nothing wrong with that. There might be some truth in that, but you only got ten plagues and you got like 2,000 gods. So I don't know if that's the purpose in God communicating that to us. I think the purpose, if we read... At a, at a large scale here, we run into a, a section of Scripture where God unleashes wrath on a country, a nation, a people, unlike any other time in history. And a very easy way to ignore that fact is to just focus on the plagues. 
But let's take the plagues as a whole and say, holy cow, this God is ticked. He is angry. He is judging these people. And I don't want to spend, you know, I'm not trying to go Jonathan Edwards on you and be all like fire and brimstone, but I'm convinced that if we do not understand the wrath and judgment of God, if we don't have clarity on exactly who this God is, we will never understand the depth of the love God has for us in Christ. No way. We'll take this book of Exodus and we'll take it out. We'll talk about the plagues and stuff. We'll watch the Prince of Egypt and we'll think about Charlton Heston. And that's really great. But if it's a part, if it's a chapter in a large story of redemption that has a beginning with sin and a climax with the hero of Jesus, then we have to look at this as a picture of our own salvation, of our own redemption and go, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is angry? And wrathful, and what am I going to do with that God? What am I going to do with His anger? So today we're going to have a Thanksgiving sermon on being thankful for God's wrath. Hope you enjoy yourself. Exodus chapter 7. Here we go. We are at the first part, or we read through the first part, where Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, dropped down the staff, the snake appeared, the snake, uh, or the magicians created their own snakes to compete doesn't say how many, so I like to imagine there's like 20 different magicians threw them down and the one big snake ate them all. They ignored it, didn't even see that it happened. The bottom line is they didn't listen to Moses. Israel now is still despondent, still broken in spirit because they don't see any hope. Nothing's working and God tells them to go before Pharaoh again and this is where he's going to gener- or very much unleash as to what he promised. Verse 14 is where we'll start. We'll go through just about oh, 10 or so verses and then we'll break it apart. It says, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone." And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And seven full days passed, 
after the Lord had struck the Nile. So earlier in chapter 7, specifically in verse 4, God said that Pharaoh's not going to listen. And in verse 4 he says, after he doesn't listen, I'm going to bring my children out of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And so this is the first of what are ten, if you want to include the other, it would be eleven, ten acts of judgment that he unleashes on Egypt and on Pharaoh in particular. And this particular judgment is not as bad as the ones that are coming. They get progressively more and more terrible. They get more personal on the individual's bodies. They get on the cattle and eventually on the children. And so what begins with what could be described as somewhat of an inconvenience and a hard time because it lasts a week ends with complete devastation of this particular nation. And the pollution of the Nile is in many ways a judgment on Egypt for a, for a multiple purposes. It is probably the most meaningful, minus maybe the last plague, the most symbolic of the plagues, because this is a very idolatrous nation. The Nile is the god of Egypt. Now, there are many gods, but there is a god above those who is in control and affecting their whole lives. Their economic life, their spiritual life is wrapped up in the Nile, so much so if the Nile dies figuratively or spiritually, whatever, if it physically dies like it is, that has a huge impact on the country, on the nation. Now, the Nile, scholars argue, and I'm not really sure why, I think it's kind of foolish, argue whether did the Nile really turn to blood. Is it just a color? Because blood in Hebrew is a color and it's a substance. I personally think it turns to blood, but I don't think it even matters because the fact that God causes it to occur... And all the miracles or all the plagues, he commands and then he ends. I'm more concerned about the God behind it than I am what's actually happening. But I'm going to go with it. It's blood. So here's what happens in the plague. It's very clear in Scripture. The Nile is polluted. It's poison. Some would say moss and soil. I say it's turned to blood. Okay? It is blood. Because of that, a fish in the Nile die. Go up and fill your fish tank up with blood and see how your fish do. Not very well. So all the fish and all the ponds and everything that's connected with the Nile die. Okay? Now, this results in a little bit of a stink. Makes sense. In fact, I was reading some science like pontifications about this, and they actually talked about the rotting of the fish and the chemicals that are released is similar in nature in terms of a reaction to anthrax. And so you can see that not only the fish start stinking, they're rotting, then suddenly you have the water poison. So much so it's not just it kind of tastes bad, but so they can't even drink it. It's both disgusting and harmful. And as I said, the water extends or the plague extends over not just the Nile, but the ponds and the rivers and the canals. And then so far as any water they already taken out of the Nile is turned to blood, which is a crazy miracle, and I don't know how that's caused by moss and soil and all that stuff. So the guy goes to take a sip out of his little, you know, Egyptian latte. He's like, whoa, I didn't know I had a cinnamon twist latte because it's all bloody now. Okay, so it's bad, terrible, devastating. And it lasts for a week. 
for a week. And economically, this is completely devastating. Fishing industry, all kinds of agriculture, uh, any kind of business, sustenance, anything, overnight, overnight it turns bad. Overnight, the foundations of everything that their nation is built on, economically and otherwise, is destroyed. And it couldn't help but go, hmm, look at Wall Street today and how overnight, which is really, it's like overnight, you go to bed Tuesday night, wake up Wednesday, and everyone's poor. Or so they, I, I don't know, personally, I don't have a lot of anything, okay, I'm pretty poor, so I don't know, there's a lot of people that are probably suffering a lot worse than I probably should be, and I know I'm going to feel it, but all I know is gas prices are coming down, so I'm feeling pretty good, okay, but economically, it's terrible. And you can start to see really quickly what the foundation of a country, so to speak, is, is built on. And I'm not saying that God is like, Boop, I'm going to judge America. Because you've got all kinds of Christian, freaky, religious people coming out and be like, yes, that's why God gave them AIDS. God gave, it's like, anytime something bad happens, they come out and like, yeah, that's God, God judging America because they don't love Jesus. Come on, okay? Maybe. I'll leave that because... I can't say no. I see that he actively judges nations. But, let's just say no for the sake of saying no. I also know that God works in his passive wrath. And Romans 1 is very clear that sometimes he lets men go into their sin. A lot of times. He lets men go into their sin. And sin does a pretty darn good job of jacking stuff up by itself. And if I just want to be the sinful guy, I can see how greed has created this mess very easily. I don't have to blame God's finger, although it might be withholding His finger of grace. Either way, God's in control, and I'm at rest in that. But Exodus 7.16, which we just read, says why God does this. Why He does His judgment or unleashes a judgment on, Israel, on uh, Egypt. He says this, And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, quote, so speaking for God now, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. I really wish sometimes God would just show up in people's face and go, you know, I've been telling you a long time that you're supposed to be doing it my way and you haven't obeyed. How quickly... I would hope they would change. But Pharaoh doesn't. Doesn't listen. Doesn't obey. But the judgment is rooted in disobedience, in rebellion, in sin of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh believed, if you read the beginning of Exodus, which some of you did with me, if you read it, he believed what he was doing, which was complete rebellion against God and disobedience, was going to lead to life. Okay? That's what we really believe about sin. No one goes into sin knowing, I know this is going to destroy me. I can't wait till I feel the pain and suffering. We all believe, whenever we sin, that that's going to lead to life and enjoyment and protection or safety, whatever it is. That's what Pharaoh did. He denied God, rebelled against God, and he decided to enslave God's people because he feared that they would leave, economically they would be destroyed, and they may join another nation and come and attack and overtake him. So he believed that what he was doing, his sin to keep these people enslaved, was actually a good thing. It would lead to life. But sin never 
ever leads to life. Even if in the moment it seems like it is, and you see these people succeeding in their sin, sin will always lead to death. Always. Disobedience to God will always lead to death. Rebellion against God will always lead to death. And he says right here, you have disobeyed me, here comes death. Here comes judgment. Now, at the heart of Pharaoh's sin, at the heart of his sin, and it's the heart of all of our sin, is idolatry. Idolatry. God has said in Deuteronomy 6.5, it's the first verse my kids memorize. They like to say Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.5, okay? Love the Lord your God. It's a command. It's not like, hey, you should think about. Maybe you want to consider love. No, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, it's what you're supposed to teach your children and put on your doorposts and talk about it all the time. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. But the reality is we love other things more than God. It's very simple. And we have our Ten Commandments, but we always break the first commandment before we break any of the others. That being, there's one God. I have no other gods before me. We always break that one first before we consider adultery or any kind of addiction or any kind of lying or anything. We always worship a different God, whether it be a person, a thing, or a cause. Now, we are called to love God. We are called to to worship God. We are called to respect God's judgment, but we don't. And God, as a result, responds to that sin. And I'm going to draw a dark picture. I'm going to really focus on who this God is because I don't think we focus enough. I mean, when's the last time you heard about God's wrath? That's too negative. Okay, we're going to talk about God's wrath. And I'm going to kind of show you what Scripture says about it because He responds to sin. His wrath in my view, is his attitude toward sin. Psalm 78. We're going to look at Psalm 78. The Bible is replete with references to this plague scenario. And in some of those references, he gives insight into what God's attitude is behind it, what the motivation is behind it. And this passage is amazing. It reminds us of all the plagues. and It goes through them, and then at the end it says something. Verse 42 in chapter 78 of Psalm of the psalm, says this, speaking of Israel, who tested God, verse 42 says, They did not remember His power, or the day when He redeemed them from the foe, when He performed His signs in Egypt, and His marvels in the fields of Zone. He turned their rivers to blood, so that they could not drink their streams. He sent them among their swarms of flies, which devoured them, and the frogs which destroyed them. And He gave their crops to the destroying locusts, and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. And He destroyed their vines with hail, and their sycamores with frost. And He gave over their cattle to the hail, and their flocks to thunderbolts. Which was probably a pretty cool sight, if you think about it. Flocks, you know, that'd be cool. I think. Maybe that's, I'm a freak like that, but a sheep getting shot by a thunderbolt is kind of an exciting thing. So, verse 49, though, says this. All those plagues, He let loose. I love thinking God let loose. He let loose on them His burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. I don't like that kind of God. 
He let loose His wrath. Why? Because they were disobedient. They were sinful and rebellious. They would not worship the one true God. And He unleashed His wrath. And the picture of His wrath is scary. He very well could have come and said, well, final plague here. Let's just take this one plague. This will wipe him out. This will, you know, convince him and he will let the people go. But Bible says very clearly, we talked about this in the hardening passage you can, of sermon. You can download that. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. Well, why? Well, it's just like one plague. Because in Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. And they say, the God of the Hebrews told you release. And Pharaoh's response is, who is this? I don't know who this God is. And so from Exodus chapter 5, all the way through the plagues, God's telling him his name. Let me tell you my name. And so I can get my full name out before you cut me off. I'm going to harden your heart. And so this is a picture of my complete name. And it includes both the redemption of the people, but the judgment on the rebellious Egyptian. And so God has a full name. A beginning, a middle, first, middle, and last name. It's not just one of them. But in our tendencies, I think, we only focus on one. We only focus on the part of the name of God that we like, that feels comfortable to us. But that doesn't give us a full picture of who this God is. He says in Exodus 34, this is after Egypt. I hate to ruin the story for you. Israel is uh, redeemed, okay? Destroys Egypt. And he's on the mountain receiving the law of God. And God says, I'm going to walk before you. I'm going to tell you my name. Moses like, okay. And here's some of the things he says. He said, the Lord, the Lord. He says, I am gracious. And I am merciful. And I am loving. And I am faithful. And I am forgiving. But I am wrathful. I will by no means, he says, overlook the sin that's there. I mean, how can you be a merciful God if you overlook the sin? Right? I am wrathful. This is His full name. But we only want to speak about the tenderness of God, which is there. It's there. But we speak about it all the time and never speak about God's wrath so that, in my humble but sometimes accurate opinion, we don't even understand the depth of the love He has for us. You can't understand the depth of the love He has for you unless you fully embrace the wrath that He has for sin. And we go into the Bible and people go, well, I only want a loving God. I don't like a God that's angry. That makes me feel bad inside. Well, you don't want the God of the Bible then. You don't want the God of the Bible. Let me give you just a little bit of insight into this from guys way smarter than me. A.W. Pink theologian, wrote a book called The Attributes of God, really old, no one wants to probably read it. But he said this, A study of the concordance will show you that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. They're both there, but she's talking about comparison here. 
In the Old Testament, there are more than 20 words used to express the wrath conception of God in addition to those used of human anger. And the Bible references the wrath of God nearly 600 times. In other words, this isn't like just kind of there. It's full, replete in the Old Testament. Let me give you one example in a book that you probably, I don't even bother telling you where it is because it's a minor prophet. The very end of the Old Testament, Nahum, you'll like go by it like five times before you get to it. Somebody should read you the scripture. We'll put it up on the screen. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Listen to the description of our God. You could get this description in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah. You could get it in Psalm. You could get it all throughout the Old Testament. It says this, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before Him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. Verse 7, the Lord is good. What? Heat of anger? Mountains quaking? Who can stand before His indignation? The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. So in Exodus, in Psalm, in Nahum, and all throughout the Old Testament, you have a God who hates sin, who is angry towards it, wrathful towards it, punishes sin. But you also have a God that is good and a God, well here it says, is jealous. And we think of jealousy in a very negative sense. We think, oh, that's, we're always thinking of, of man terms. And we have to be careful because the Bible is going to use terms that we understand because it can't really describe God's love and God's angers in terms that we understand because we're always filtered through sin. So when we think of jealousy, we think of self-centered jealousy like some husband or boyfriend being jealous, which is really self-centered because he's insecure. Well, let me just give you newsflash. God ain't insecure about anything. He's not worried that some God is going to, you know, be more beautiful than him. It's not possible. He is jealous for our affection. He is jealous in a protective and a caring way, in the way a husband should be for his wife, in a godly way, not a sinful way. In such that he pursues men, he desires to give them everything they need, then be or then be fully satisfied in him. Because they will never be satisfied in anything else. He is a jealous God in a very godly and righteous way. He pursues my attention. He pursues my love. He pursues my adoration. And He refuses to share my heart with anybody. So God is angry. 
towards anything that will capture our attention away from Him. Anything. Because anything that draws our devotion away from God is sin. But God, by nature, can't just be indifferent towards sin and go, well, eh, eh, no big deal. If God is going to be holy and perfectly righteous and perfectly just, He must by nature have a negative reaction towards sin. And as much as He loves us, He must hate sin in a very righteous way. So we think of hate, we go, hate's such a bad thing. God describes Himself as hating sin. I hate this. Here's seven things I hate. He names them. But God is loving and good. He is jealous and angry, but He's loving and good. And God's perfect love for rightness and justice and beauty demands perfect hate. This is how Dr. Leon Morris is a great theologian. He said it this way. The more he loves, speaking of God, the more he loves, the more he'll be angry with everything that mars the perfection of his beloved. That is, with every sin. And God's wrath is identical with God's love. God's wrath is God's love, blazing out in fiery indignation against every evil in his beloved And if you think about a loving father, we've all had fathers that in some way have failed us. They've either been too angry and abusive, or they've been abusive and that they haven't loved us enough. But we're not talking about our broken fathers. We're talking about the perfect father. So imagine the perfect father, how the father would perfectly love us. And we think of a father, if you imagine one that never gets angry, the perfect father never gets angry, the perfect father never teaches right and wrong, the perfect father never protects and comes to fight for his child, if the perfect father just approves of everything because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings, that is not a loving father in any way. He loves perfectly and he hates perfectly. And then we have people say, well, that's the Old Testament God. That's Old Testament. I don't, I just want Jesus. So we say, well, God is like, God's like Jesus. Well, what they mean is he's meek, he's mild, he's tender, he's humble, he's loving all the time. And he is all those things. But Jesus, more than anyone else, talked about torment and hell, gnashing of teeth, and darkness caused by separation from God rooted in sin. He did not whisper about it at all. So take Jesus, that's fine, but make sure you take Jesus of the Bible. The full name of Jesus, not just the pieces that make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And in John chapter 5, he said, in fact, I'm the one who's judging. The Father's not judging. I'm judging. And if you ever want to just read what Jesus is going to be like in his judgment when he returns, he, he's, he's done his... Galilean peasant deal. He came as the impoverished, normal Joe, guy who dwelt among the people, lived a perfect human life. When he comes back, you go ahead and read 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 through 10, and see what Jesus is like. Because he not only is judge, but he's executioner. 
And he comes back and he unleashes judgment in the same way as final judgment on sin. People would be better to listen to Jesus' advice in Matthew 10 said, 10.28, Why be scared of people who can kill the body? Our fear should come from the one who can take the soul. And not a fear like, oh, God, don't kill me. But in some sense, we have this God who is both terrifying and loving at the same time. They're like, how do things go together? I don't know. It's hard for our brains to comprehend. I think that what we do, because we can't comprehend it, is we throw it out. We want a loving God, tender, gracious. I want to tell people about that because, you know, it's just too negative and hurtful. People, you know, they're not going to come to Jesus. I mean, Sam, you're going to kill the church if you talk about the wrath of God. No one's going to come back. Maybe. Maybe. But if we don't talk about the wrath of God, we only talk about part of His name. We end up with two things, I think, happening. One is we minimize sin and we think, well, sin's just something God just kind of doesn't like. He really wish He didn't do that. Versus it makes Him furious. Because he knows how much it hurts us. And the second is that God becomes less of a God who's just and his love becomes nothing more than just sentimental, lovey-dovey, I love you, God, thanks. It's like a big bunny up in the sky. It makes you feel good. Versus understanding the depth of what he does because you understand the wrath that your sin deserves and my sin deserves. I like that C.S. Lewis, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Chronicles of Narnia was a wonderful series. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, great book. You should read all of them, though, because it's, it's really a fantastic series. The movies have done well, but they haven't portrayed it perfectly. One of the things that they portray that C.S. Lewis did very well is to portray the concept of God being both terrifying and loving at the same time. And when the children are talking about meeting Aslan, they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Not leave it to Beaver. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they're actually Beavers, you know, teeth and all that deal. And they talk, yeah. It's a good book. They say, they're telling them that they're going to meet Aslan. Oh, really? Well, what's he like? And they go, oh, he's not, he's not a man. They go, he's not a man? Oh, you know, he's the great lion. And they go, oh, great lion, okay. Great li- lion? Because they're talking like little short Beavers. I mean, lion, okay. Well, uh... Is, is he safe? Here's what they say. Safe? Safe? Don't you hear what we told you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the great king. And Peter responds, Oh, I long to see him even if I do feel frightened when it comes to point. That's the God that I worship. The God that when Moses comes to the burning bush and he says, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. The God that I revere and in awe of. Not fear as in he's going to come jump on me at night and kill me, but in awe and such reverence 
because I recognize who He is and His power. Proverbs 9 teaches us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. It starts with fear. We have different ways of dealing with fear. You have the religious people, and I'm going to use religion in a negative sense, although it doesn't have to be. Religion deals with the the fear of God and interprets the fear of God by basically, much like the Egyptians, being scared of God. And so the religious people work really hard to appease the gods, similar to how the Egyptians used to appease their gods because they thought he was angry, or they were angry. And so religious, the extremely religious, legalistic, whatever you want to call it, work as hard as they can because they think if they do enough good stuff, God will love them. Because their acceptance is based simply on how good they are. They're scared of God, and every day is difficult, and their spirituality feels like duty, but they would never admit that. And they work and work and work and work, because they want God to be angry at them. And a lot of our world works like that, too. They don't call it religion. But I just want to ask them, like, well, how much good is enough, really, to appease the infinite God? How much? Did you do enough? Are the balances going to work out for you? No. It's scary. And they live in in fear. But then there's the irreligious. And the irreligious, uh, although the Bible says that uh, our God, the one true God, is not like the Egyptian's God. He's not capricious. He's not just unpredictable and just unleashes anger whenever. He's very specific about what he is angry with. Sin. There's no guessing. It's like, hmm, I wonder what upsets him. No, he says it very specifically. That's what the, the God's law is about. That's what the whole Levitical priesthood is about. It's what all of what Hebrews says ends in Christ is about. God says, I hate sin. I'm going to punish sin. And so the irreligious, instead of you know, getting scared of God, they just pretend like, well, he's not there. And they make their own laws. And as Romans 1 indicates, they suppress the truth. And they pretend they don't know what the Bible says they know. So the religious try to appease God and his anger on their own. And the irreligious pretend like he's not there, suppressing what they know, saying God's not really angry. We just need more love. We need more compassion. And there's nothing wrong with compassion. There's a bunch of techie guys, you look on Google, headed by, headed by the Googles, are trying to bring all the religious people together of all kinds. You can see the people on the board. It's like a Buddhist and all kinds of people. I, like, I don't even know where they're from. No Christians, mind you. And they're, it's called the Compassion Project, I think. And they're trying to create a code of compassion of some sort. Because they think love's going to you know, save the world. Well, I, I don't disagree that love, but I don't think they understand what love is. They don't understand what love is. And they're trying to make it out that God isn't actually angry with them. We just need to be more loving. That still doesn't take care of sin. It doesn't speak to the reason why they think they need a compassion project. So we worship a God who is angry and loving and terrifying and good. And the religious people focus way too much on God's wrath. That's the only part of the name they want to talk about. And the irreligious people only want to talk about God's love. 
And both are wrong. You need them both. And the fear, the genuine, biblical fear of God should lead us away from religion and away from irreligion to the cross, to the gospel. The good news of what Jesus has done on the cross to bring us back to Him. Hebrews 13 says, I'm sorry, it's 10 actually, 31 I believe. It is a terrifying thing or a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it is. And we have to do something with God's anger. But the reality is, we don't have to do anything. God's done it. 1 John 4.10 is a verse that we should underline, highlight, star. If you don't like to write in your Bible, then tattoo it on your arm. That's what I'm going to do. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you go, propitiation? What's that? I won't get into a theological talk about that until we get to the final plague. But at the core of it is this. Our forgiveness is not the removal of God's wrath by Him just waving His hand and saying, okay, don't worry about it. And I didn't really like that you did that, but don't worry. Don't think about it. What propitiation tells us is that God did not just remove His wrath. He took all of that wrath, represented by the first plague and the last plague, all of it, the terrifying, terrible, powerful, awesome wrath of God because He is just and right and He poured it on His Son. And propitiation describes not just removal, but absorbing all of the sins of us onto Himself and all the punishment that it deserved. He takes it all. And therefore, on the cross, God says, I am not willing to be unjust. I'm not willing to be morally unrighteous, basically. I am very willing to be just, and I'm not willing to let my people die. So I'm both going to be just and the justifier. I'm going to be just and loving. And if we don't understand the wrath of God poured out of the Son and the strength of that and the terrifying nature of that, if we don't believe we deserve that, we'll never see how much God has loved us. It's a love that's unimaginable because we are dirtier and more sinful than we'll ever admit and more loved than we'll ever believe. So we hear stuff about wrath of God or we hear sermons like that and we go, yeah, there's some wrath. People need some God's wrath in here. That's right. And I'll just end with this. This week has been horrific for me. Because in the midst of talking about God's wrath, very easy to think about all, read the papers and see the news and get angry about the things you see. And having a God who gets angry about that makes me feel good. I want, when I read about a woman getting raped, I want to be angry. And that's good. When I hear about a husband abusing a, a wife, that makes me angry. A child getting abused, it makes me angry. Someone being murdered makes me angry. And in some sense, that reflects the image of God that's still there, restored by Jesus but marred by sin. 
I want a God that gets angry. But in the midst of thinking about that, you have to remember that you and I are sinners and we have to deal with God's anger. And suddenly you're like, be angry with them but not me. And so this week, actually last week, we had a, not even two weeks ago, we, uh, we have elders meetings every other Tuesday. And I basically sat with these guys and said, we need to make sure we don't got sin in our lives, guys, or this church ain't going to go anywhere. I unloaded on them, and they may not call it unloading, but I felt like I unloaded on them, like, sin, 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 wrath, wrath. I mean, that's what I've been studying. It's like, wrath, you know? And they're like, oh, they're all crying. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, Matt was, but no, just kidding. <laughs> no, we were just talking about the wrath, and I was serious about it. Cause I said, look, if you are living in sin, this will go nowhere. It will be destroyed. And as I left that night and, and thought on it, I emailed them later that week because I felt terrible. Because God showed me my own sin. Not my sins that, you know, here's your list of things you didn't do right this week. My sin, my brokenness that we all have. And here's what I wrote to him. I'll read you my email. I said, uh, guys, as elders, we're not perfect. We are sinners. In fact, as Paul so aptly declares in 1 Timothy 1.15, my tattoo verse, we are the greatest of sinners. One might say that we are the chief sinners of the church. Sinners who recognize their own brokenness so much that they see even more clearly God's grace. I'm reminded not to believe that as we look or try to look more and more like Jesus in our journey, we in some way almost become perfect. Without question, I pray that our active participation in sin becomes less, but at the same time, we become more aware of how sinful we are. We are examples, the Bible says, worthy of imitation, not because we pursue godliness, but because we have so deeply faced our own depravity, sin, and filthiness, our own idols, yesterday and today, and thus deeply see how good God is and how bad we are and how much He loves us. We, in fact, believe the gospel more deeply because we see our own need of a Savior more clearly. That's how I feel about God's wrath. It teaches me to be so grateful for how much He's loved us. And every Sunday, we celebrate communion. We take the bread, which is Christ's body broken. We dip it in the cup to celebrate His blood shed as a representation for those who have accepted Christ. This is, this is a family event. And we celebrate the wrath of God poured out on His Son. And we remember it. You notice we're not ever lifting up. Jesus didn't say, go lift up little pebbles to remember my resurrection, although that is important. He remembers the wrath that was we rightly deserve poured out on His Son for us. And so as you come today, if you're a believer in Jesus, 
I pray that you come and you think of it differently, remembering what actually took place. And if you don't know Jesus, as the Bible says, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. Believe that Jesus died as your substitute on the cross. Believe that God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. And then join us in communion. Let's pray. Father, I recognize that we come into your presence solely because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. We do not deserve to be in your presence, God. I pray, Lord, that we will see you for the beauty that you are, for the just, good God that you are. That your wrath, Father, your hatred for sin will translate into such a love for us that we will love you more deeply because of how you've loved us, God. I pray that we will never believe that our obedience is what makes us acceptable to you, but that Jesus' death alone is what makes us accepted. And I pray, Father, that the closer I get to you, as I begin to see my own darkness and bumps and bruises more clearly, that you remind me every day that it's forgiven. In your son's blood we pray, amen. Isaiah 26.4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is a everlasting rock. Please stand.